I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In this episode, I'd like to explore reasons that psalm singing has declined in the evangelical church today. But first, I want to let you know about a new practical book on preserving and transmitting biblical Christianity that will be published soon with G3 Press. The Apostle Paul declared to the Ephesian elders in his farewell address in Acts chapter 20 that he was innocent of the blood of all of them because he had not failed to deliver them what he called the whole counsel of God. In other words, he had transferred to them all that was necessary for a life that is pleasing to God. Similarly, at its core, Conservative Christianity aims at following Paul's example in successfully transferring the whole counsel of God to the next generation. While Christ himself promised to build his church, and he said in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Paul calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is what God has designed to guard, protect, and defend the truth of God's word. But what does it take to accomplish the goal of preserving God's truth as he has commissioned us to do? How can we truly conserve biblical truth and pass it on to the next generation? Well, this is the question that David DeBrain seeks to answer in what I consider a profoundly biblical and practical book, The Conservative Church Preserving and Transmitting Biblical Christianity, published by G3 Press. David was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. He now pastors there at New Covenant Baptist Church, where he resides with his wife and three children. He has theological degrees from here in the States at Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Minnesota, and also a doctorate in theology from the University of South Africa. He hosts a weekly radio program there in South Africa that's heard through much of the country, He serves as a frequent conference speaker, and he lectures at Shepherd's Seminary, Africa. In this book, The Conservative Church, David addresses how we can protect and pass on the whole counsel of God, including what it means to know God, love God, and live for God. David is concerned not only with biblical doctrine, though doctrine is, of course, essentially important, but he's also concerned with biblical affection for God and living for God. And he describes these, and these are the sections of the book, as orthodoxy, orthopathy, and orthopraxy. I encourage you to pre-order this book, which comes out at the end of the month with G3 Press, The Conservative Church Preserving and Transmitting Biblical Christianity. You can go to g3min.org, click the shop button at the top of the site, and you'll find the book right there. Well, it is no secret that among most evangelical churches today, the psalms are mostly ignored in corporate worship. Maybe a line or two will be cited in a transition between songs. Maybe a contemporary song will take a phrase from a psalm and repeat it over and over again, but not much more. We simply don't sing psalms anymore. And this despite the fact that the Psalter is the longest book in our Bibles. It contains more words than any other single book in the Bible and almost as many words as the entirety of Paul's epistles. This despite the fact that the Psalter is the Bible's most quoted book. The Psalter is the only book whose contents are singled out by Paul in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 
for us to sing to one another in gathered worship. The Psalter is just as inspired, just as authoritative, just as profitable as any other part of Holy Scripture. Christ himself said in Luke 24, 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. In that verse, Jesus sets the Psalter right alongside the law and the prophets in terms of significance and authority for the believer. I think C.H. Spurgeon was right even in his own day when he said, It is to be feared that the Psalms are by no means so prized as in earlier ages of the church, and that's probably even more true today. But as Spurgeon indicated, this neglect of the Psalms has not always been so. Calvin Stapert, in his book, A New Song for an Old World, notes that the writings of the church fathers, quote, overflow with praise of psalmody. He says, the church fathers' enthusiastic promotion of psalm singing reached an unprecedented and unsurpassed peak in the 4th century, when church fathers such as St. Basil, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Ambrose gave it their unstinting praise. They mustered all of their considerable eloquence, Stapert says, to urge the faithful to sing the psalms daily. And this is notable particularly with Ambrose of Milan, who Stapert cites there, who is often called the father of Latin hymnody. He wrote many hymns, but even Ambrose praised psalm singing. This emphasis on the importance of psalm singing continued, of course, during the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin said, There is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God, or in which we are more powerfully stirred up to the performance of this religious exercise than the book of Psalms. Following in Calvin's tradition, the English Puritans cherished the Psalms, The first book published in North America in 1640 was the Bay Psalm book, and psalm singing continued in America well into the 18th century. But again, as Spurgeon noted, even in his day, psalm singing has fallen away in the evangelical church. Why is this the case? Well, I think there's at least four factors that have contributed to the neglect and waning of psalm singing in evangelical churches today. The first factor that I believe has led to the neglect of psalm singing is that at least in the English language traditionally, the number of good, singable, poetically beautiful psalm versifications have actually been rather rare. There have, of course, been many attempts to versify the psalms in English since the English Reformation in the 16th century, And some have been very successful, some are very beautiful, some are very singable, but relatively few. In fact, this is something that Isaac Watts particularly noted in his day. Isaac Watts said this, he said, While we sing the praises of our God and his church, we are employed in that part of worship, which of all others is the nearest akin to heaven, and tis pity that this of all others should be performed the worst upon earth. In Watts's day, churches in England sang psalms exclusively, and Watts noted how poor psalm singing was. And part of the reason for this was the poor quality of the English 
versifications of the Psalms themselves. Watts notes how the lines of text were often long and very difficult to follow, and this was particularly a problem in his day because of music illiteracy. People couldn't read music, and so psalms had to be lined out where the leader would sing a line and then the people would sing a line. And Watts noted of this, quote, This way of singing by reading causes a very great interruption in the music and thereby makes the exercise abundantly more flat and dull than otherwise. For the reading of the line, he says, does frequently break the sense until that be given whole and entire, we know not what we sing, but are left to uncertain conjectures. And before the whole sense be read out, we have frequently forgotten what we first sang. So his point is that in his day, the lines of text in the versifications of the Psalms were so long and convoluted and with the practice of lining out, by the time you got to an end of a sentence, you had forgotten what was at the beginning of the sentence. So people just didn't understand what they were singing. Again, part of the problem there was music illiteracy, but also part of the problem was the lack of quality in psalm versifications. This leads then to the second reason psalm singing began to wane in evangelical churches. And again, it is because of Isaac Watts. It really is Isaac Watts's fault. Because he was so disturbed by the lack of quality in psalm singing, Watts determined that he would do his own versions. But instead of versifying the psalms, that is, taking the psalms in English and putting them into rhyme and meter so that they can be sung, and keeping the text as close as possible to the original psalms, Watts paraphrased the psalms. He produced a collection called The Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament and Applied to the Christian State and Worship. Besides his discontent with the poetic awkwardness of the metrical psalmody in current use in his day, Watts also thought that psalm versifications, that is, strict singing of the Old Testament psalms, were not proper for the Christian church, even in content. Watts said of the content of inscripturated psalms, quote, When the best of Christians attempt to sing many of them in our common translations, that spirit of devotion vanishes and is lost, the psalm dies upon their lips, and they feel scarce anything of the holy pleasure. Again, part of the reason for this was the lack of quality in the English versions of the psalms themselves, but also Watts believed that Christians could not sing strict translations of the psalms because the psalms were so specifically tied to the author and the circumstances of the psalm that Christians couldn't sing them. He believed that psalms were, quote, fitted chiefly for Jewish worshipers, and so Christians can't necessarily sing them in their own worship. And so this led Watts to produce not a new translation or versification of the psalms, but songs that would imitate the language and sentiments and subjects of the psalms, but in the language of Christians rather than in the language of Jews. Watts said this, I come therefore to explain my own design, which is to accommodate the book of Psalms to Christian worship, and in order to do this, it is necessary to divest David and Asaph and every other character but that of a psalmist and a saint, 
and to make them always speak the common sense and language of a Christian. And so in this goal, Watts reinterpreted and adjusted the original meaning of the Psalms in light of the New Testament and Christian experience. For example, Watts says this of his setting of Psalm 4, quote, Though this psalm may not directly intend the Messiah, yet I have taken occasion to apply some expressions in it to Christ and his gospel, I hope with some advantage and without offense. In a similar way, he explained this of his setting of Psalm 12. The signs of Christ's coming mentioned in the New Testament are abounding iniquity, love waxing cold, and faith scarce to be found, and seem very much akin to the sense of this psalm. And so he took those New Testament ideas and he put them into his version of Psalm 12. Some of Watts' psalm settings, like his setting of Psalm 23 and his setting of Psalm 90, which is, O God, our help in ages past, are very close to the original Old Testament psalm. But many examples abound of Watts taking the main themes of a psalm and really just writing a new hymn. Examples of this include Jesus Shall Reign and Joy to the World, which are actually psalm paraphrases, but you wouldn't even know it. They really are new hymns. So those are the first two reasons I think psalm singing has begun to wane. There have not historically been a lot of well-written psalm versifications in the English language, and the success of Isaac Watts's Christianized versions of the psalms, as well as his excellent hymns, led many English churches to neglect psalm singing altogether. But there are two other reasons psalm singing has waned in the evangelical church, and they're actually related to Watts' concerns with the psalms that I would argue are actually misunderstandings of the psalms. And this is the third reason. Christians don't understand the nature of the psalms. They don't understand this God-inspired collection of songs. This is perhaps most evident, I think, by the fact that even when Christians today do use the psalms, maybe in corporate worship or individual worship, they tend to exclusively gravitate towards psalms of comfort, Psalm 23 is the most likely, or psalms of praise. In fact, I would suggest that if you ask most Christians today, what is the dominant theme of the psalms, they would most likely say that it is praise. But this evidences a misunderstanding of the nature of the Psalms. It is certainly true that the book of Psalms in Hebrew was originally called Tehillim, which means praises. Praise is a dominant theme in the Psalms. We expect to find expressions of praise like hallelujah, which is the key word in the Psalms that means praise the Lord. But if you give a little bit of attention to the actual contents of this collection, It becomes apparent that the book was called Praises, not actually just because the book is a collection of expressions of praise. In fact, while there are mentions of praise and commitments to praise the Lord throughout the Psalter, that key word, hallelujah, does not even appear in the entire collection until Psalm 104. The last 50 Psalms or so, of course, are filled with expressions of hallelujah, but not until Psalm 104. Much of the Psalter is not praise. And of course, this is exactly what Watts noticed, and it concerned him. Many of the Psalms are not praise. So why then would the whole book be called praises if many of the Psalms are not praises, and you don't even find 
an emphasis on praise until the very end. Well, again, this evidences what for many Christians is a misunderstanding of the nature of this book. We need to remember what we have here. Each of the Psalms is an individual song written by different authors like David, Moses, Solomon, Asaph, and others. But contrary to what many Christians likely assume, this is not just a loosely connected collection of songs. Someone didn't just collect as many songs as he could and group them together. Someone did collect these songs and group them together, probably during or after the Babylonian exile. Could have been someone like Ezra or a group of scribes. And these editors arranged the Psalms intentionally into five books in a particular order for a particular purpose. And again, most Christians don't realize that there is a deliberate organization to the Psalms. Christians in the past understood this. For example, in the 4th century, Gregory of Nyssa wrote about, quote, an approach to the systematic observation of the concepts concerning the Psalter in its totality. Christians in the past recognized that there is a deliberate organization to the Psalter and that helped them to recognize that all of the Psalms need to be sung. Today, most Christians don't recognize that. They think that the Psalter is just a collection of 150 random songs, and so some of those songs might be applicable and valuable for Christians and some of those songs might not. That way of viewing the Psalms individually really came as a result of Hermann Gunkel's approach to the Psalter in the early 20th century. His approach focused on individual songs and their genre, which in many ways sterilized the Psalms. Now, don't get me wrong. There, of course, is certainly much profit to reading and meditating upon one Psalm for its own sake. Most of the Psalms were written as individual compositions, and each Psalm can stand on its own. However, the deliberate ordering of the five books of the Psalms is authoritative. It is inspired, and there's a purpose behind it. God's intention was not simply for us to have the Psalms. He intends for us to have the Psalms in a particular arrangement. Reading individual psalms on their own does have great profit, but failing to recognize the inspired, authoritative, canonical shape of the Psalter is the third reason, I believe, that has allowed Christians to gravitate toward a relatively few psalms instead of recognizing the value of all of them. Really, a helpful way of understanding this deliberate organization is to conceive of the Psalter as a five-movement cantata. Each psalm was composed by an individual author in a particular setting for a particular reason, but later, editors inspired by the Holy Spirit of God arranged the order of the psalms, and possibly even in some cases the psalm texts themselves, into five movements with deliberate thematic progression as their intent. And so the psalms are arranged thematically into these five movements, moving us in a particular order for a particular reason. And lack of understanding that deliberate organization is one key reason, I believe, Christians don't value the singing of all the psalms like we used to.
And then there's one more reason I think psalm singing has fallen out of favor among evangelicals today. In addition to modern Christians lacking an understanding of the deliberate organization of the Psalter, many also do not recognize the power and purpose of poetry, in the Psalms to be sure, but really also in the rest of life. This is largely due to secularization in the wake of the Enlightenment. Most modern people consider art to be merely diversion rather than the rich medium of meaning and formative power that poetry and singing is. In modern psalm study, for example, poetry has largely been relegated to classification of Hebrew parallelism. That's all we really look at. Metaphors and other symbolism in the psalms are often considered impediments to discerning the core propositional truth of a psalm. Many psalms are read or preached in the same way one would read or preach a Pauline epistle. And again, this sterilizes the psalms. This weakens their intended purpose to form believers in a particular way. Both of these latter two reasons, failing to recognize the deliberate canonical organization of the Psalter and not understanding the purpose and power of poetry, have contributed to the neglect of psalm singing, I believe, among Christians today. And so really an important corrective that will remedy modern deficiency among contemporary psalm usage is to understand this very important reality. The psalms, all of them, all of the 150 psalms, have been given to us by God, not merely to find a mood that fits our present state of being, but rather, God has given us the psalms to form us. And so if we want to see a necessary resurgence of psalm singing among evangelical Christians today, we need to recognize God's purpose for the use of psalms in our lives and worship through the formative intent of the poetry and the organization of the psalms. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services, and if you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at g3min.org, and for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm.